Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Vintage Books podcast with me, Alex Clark. As regular listeners will know, every month we bring you author interviews, book news and discussions that range from literary fiction to graphic novels, cookery to crime, history and travel, to sport, biography and poetry. Vintage publishes writers such as Joe Nesbo, Nigella Lawson, Irvin Welsh, Joe Sacco, Anne Enright, Mark Haddon and many more. And it gets even busier every autumn, the moment in the literary calendar when some of the most highly anticipated books of the year are released. In recent weeks, we've already seen new novels by Howard Jacobson, whose extraordinary work of fiction, Jay, has been long-listed for the Man Booker Prize, and Haruki Murakami, whose colourless Sukuru Dazaki and his years of pilgrimage had readers queuing up at midnight. But there's more in store. Ian McEwan and Martin Amis, two of this country's most celebrated and enduring novelists, also have new books out this autumn, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome them both to the podcast studio today. The Zone of Interest is Martin Amos's 14th novel, and in it he returns to the subject he first visited in Time's Arrow, the Holocaust. His book asks what happened to humanity in the Nazi death camps from the perspective of both the perpetrators and their victims. And it also explores how the writer can begin to approach the subject or have any hope of understanding it. Fearless and original, The Zone of Interest is a violently dark love story and a bleak black comedy set against a backdrop of unadulterated evil. Ian McEwan's novel, The Children Act, centres on a legal case involving two parents who are refusing medical treatment for their seriously ill son due to their religious beliefs. It's told from the point of view of Fiona May, a senior judge who pronounces on cases in the family court. She is renowned for her intelligence, precision and sensitivity. But she's tested to her limits when a personal crisis collides with the life-or-death case of Adam, a beautiful and devout 17-year-old boy. Her judgment will have momentous consequences for them both. Thank you both so much uh, for joining me on the week of the publication of both your books. Uh, I just wondered if we could begin by you just saying how long you've known each other and how you met. Well, it was the 70s. 1970s. 1973, yeah. I think it was a Cape Christmas party, which in those days were somewhat legendary. More lavish affairs. Than they were than, lavish than in Bedford Square. When Cape was just Cape, it wasn't part of any group. And uh, it was more sort of a, a gentleman's profession in those days. Yeah, it was, that, it was very dusty. Presided over by Tom Mashler. I mean, Cape was. And the parties were fun. Uh, people drank more, of course, in those days. Or, I mean, we drank more in those days. Uh, I think Martin's... No, Martin came over to me and said, I read your story, Pornography, and he said, I really like the line when a pornography shop owner says, Wednesday's a cunt of a day. And I immediately liked Martin for liking that. (laughs) Do you remember that, Martin? Um, I remember the story very well. Uh, When he cleans his own underpants because they've got signs of gonorrhea on them, his girlfriend says, oh, you clean your own underpants? He said... Yeah, women's lib, in it. He said. Yeah, Martin uh, liked all the wrong things. It's very good. But uh, I was just thinking uh, that we did start out and published uh, our first books uh, more than forty years ago. And I just uh, I was reading Ian's book today and yesterday, and I saw on the blurb that he, he's written fourteen novels and two collections of short stories, and so have I. Really, fourteen and yeah. two. So we've been. 
Our lives have been somewhat parallel. Yeah, you started, uh, you published first in 74. Yeah, 73, 73, 73, I think. I published First Love, Last Rights in 75. So we were both getting yeah. going at the same time, and then... Then we both got married at the same time. And then we yeah, both had, had a son, children two time. sons at the same time. Then we both got divorced, divorced at the same, time. the same time. You went first with that. And then we got remarried at the same, same time. Same time, yeah. Yeah, within months. Yeah. Married. And our friend Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher, uh, also stuck to that pattern. I mean, he published a different number of books. He never wrote a novel, but... Um, Perhaps we'll die at the same time then. Yes, yeah. But just not looking ahead to your deaths. Right. For, 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 just for, for the moment. Get off the subject. As, then, we, as we sort of think perhaps more cheerfully about yes. your the, the way that you've paced yourself through these extraordinary careers. And here are both your, your new novels. Just just tell us a little bit about uh, what each, each of them are about and, and how they sort of started life. Who'd like to... Well, I mean, people say, why did you decide to write a second novel about the Holocaust? And it's, decide is always the wrong word. It's, it is with me. Uh, I get a, a glimmer of something, a, a frisson, a throb, that I recognize as being, the, you know, the germ or the donne of a, some piece of fiction that I can write. And very often I start a novel thinking it's going to be a short story. And then after a few months, I think, oh, maybe a novella. And then after a few more months, I think, no, this is going to go the distance. Uh, but I couldn't start a novel out of an act of will that I was going to, you know, take on this subject again. Um, I couldn't proceed without that rather mysterious and magical moment where something just comes to you. And and the obligation to write the novel is, is intense because um, they don't come along very often. You know, they've come along 14 times in my life, these moments. And perhaps the obligation is even more intense when the subject matter is so weighty. Is that is that possible? Well, the the, the glimmer I got was just, which is the first page of the novel, which is um, a sort of love at first sight moment. Although it, for the time being, it's a really a sort of lust at first sight. You know, a, a tremendous attraction on his part against this background, which is which sounds rather rural and. Uh, neutral until you come to the three-wheeled gallows at the bottom of the page, which is listed along with other things and as being part of the background. And that was, that was the Donny. And then you sit down and often to your amazement, it's, it's, most of it seems to be there. You know, it's all just ready, sometimes really startling um, that it's all there. But then a lot of... Um, trial and error, and um, then you do start to make decisions. But the, but the initial jolt is not a decision, it's a sort of obligation. Is that the same for you, Ian? I mean, something about your book suggests that there is such a strong kernel of an idea that suddenly appears before you, but maybe it's completely different. No, I'm in Martin's camp with this. I, I love those periods when you've f- finished an all handed it in, done whatever media you've decided to do, and then you just pursue your own interests, and often it's you don't think you're researching a novel; you're just um, living the the life of the mind, and things begin to grow. And with me, it started with finding myself at dinner with a handful of judges, and uh, they were sort of 
teasing each other about each other's judgments and being a little tough on the judges who weren't there. And I thought, God, these could be novelists. You know, <laughs> those novelists foolish to be absent from the conversation. And at one point, uh, the host, was Alan Ward, very distinguished judge, reached up to settle some point of an argument uh, for a bound volume of his own judgment. And about half an hour later, we'd left the table. Everyone was having coffee. I had this volume on my lap. And I thought, this is a whole subgenre, uh, a literary subgenre that, that um, I've never thought of before. In his case, in a beautiful, crisp prose, uh, slightly ironic, a little witty, but very compassionate, rational, huge, historical, philosophical reach. And then I began to get interested in judgments, his and then others. And I noticed that quite a few of them involve religion. Um, Catholics divorcing Muslims and Orthodox Jews disputing the future of their children. And then I came across the judgment of Allen's in the case of a Jehovah's Witness. And it seemed then to crystallize for me some sort of contest, friction between the secular spirit of the law and sincerely held religious belief because Which generally... Which has always been something about yeah, preoccupation. Here. It's something that tapped in, but I saw there was a great emotional possibility here. Mm. And then um, we were at a concert at Wigmore Hall and Alan talked about this case and he told me how when he had given the judgment and the, and the boy, the teenage boy, had left hospital having had his blood transfusion against his will that Alan had arranged to take the boy and his father to see Spurs play because when Alan had gone to the bedside, that's what they talked about, football. That was the boy's passion. So Alan got him into the director's box. He met all the all his starry players and Alan said he, he just saw the gleam of joy for life in the kid's eyes. And then several years later learned that he'd gone back into hospital in his early 20s, needing a transfusion, refused it and died. Uh, just Did you know, was motivation supplied? Just he'd gone back into you know, his community, Jehovah's Witness, and they would not take the blood transfusion with the support of his parents. You know, committed suicide. In effect. Yeah. In effect. This idea of belief systems is is you know comes out in both of your books, doesn't it? It's you know what people will do in the name of the beliefs that they've constructed or developed. Yeah, the mind's a powerful thing, and uh, and yes, and how it's it's a it's a world in itself that um, belief systems. Ian's been talking about religion, but um, also ideology. Mm. Although I mean, what I sort of discovered when I'd I'd gone on reading about the Holocaust for you know, the last twenty five years is that in in the Russian case, uh, very pedantically following you know, various Marxist tributaries and um, deviations and it, the ideology remained very strong. And I was, I was shocked to, to learn that Gorbachev, just as the whole empire was crumbling, was up all night reading Lenin, saying the answer must be here. But in, in Hitler's case, in the German case, um, there was no ideology. Um, then two or three ideas, living Lebensraum, extra land land empire, anti-Semitism, hallucinatory anti-Semitism, and 
just wanting to stay in power, and that was it. And um, it, uh, people weren't attracted to Nazism uh, because of its ideology. It was a sort of rallying cry for sadists, and um, that was all it was meant to be. You know, it, it, if if you're the sort of person who can lie and steal and beat without provocation and appeal to the scum of all classes, then, you know, here's my flag and fall into line behind me. Yeah, there's black flags of northern Iraq. Another case where you imagine it acts as a great attractor for every available would-be torturer and And psychopathia is thinly spread through all populations. And they just need that historical chance, don't they? Sometimes they don't get it. And why are novelists drawn to it, drawn to thinking about it, writing about it? We love things going wrong. And extremes, and in closed systems, things that are a world in themselves. Um, But what's wonderful, I think, in the zone of interest is middle management talking the language that's sort of half familiar to those of us who've had anything to do with large organisations struggling yes, a, to stay on top isn't it? Of, mm. of the commands, the sort of, and then how you know up there they really don't know how to run things properly. And <laughs> the banality um, of the middle management view—if only they get down here and see how difficult it is to run a concentration camp. How to separate a, a woman from her children? You know, they think it's easy. Well, I can come down here and try it. See how it is, mate. Yeah. It's that, the terrible routine of industrial killing. Uh, I think you caught horribly, horribly well. What, what, what's historically surprising about it, as many people have pointed out, is that you know the, the great wars of religions ended around uh, uh, the Romantic period, around 1820, um, and uh, then a century of near peace, and then ideology took hold. And you'd think that ideology would be a good sort of methadone to get you off religion, which really does seem to stir emotions, um, you know, bellicose emotions and uh, uh, absolutist emotions that, that you know, let's, let's ease off religion with a bit of ideology. But um, as Robert Conquest, the historian, put it, um, ideology turned out to be much more powerful than religion or certainly in the modern context, and that uh, a barbarism not seen for centuries descended on on Europe. That's also marvellous in the closing pages of Norman Cohn's um, Pursuit of the Millennium, that those terrifying moments in the 11th and 15th century, uh, savage anti-Semitism, psychopathic crowds swarming across the Rhineland, North Germany and the North German plains, sacking cities, killing bourgeois, and conquering slowly, and the Crusades and so on, and then it all sort of fading until it's sort of reborn. I mean, again, the thousand-year pursuit of the peaceable kingdom, well, and it, the yes, need but, of an enemy. But it Kulak, got so it got Jew. so, as Cohen said, it got it got so uh, regular this um, these eruptions that it happened at the end of every century yeah. and the end of every fifty years too. And revelation always. Um, and they find some farm boy and say he's, mm. you know, the. Second Emperor coming, yeah. reborn, and then they'd, he'd eventually get killed, burned to the stake, and then fifty years later they'd find another farm boy who was a reincarnation of that farm boy. Or Frederick II hadn't died and yeah. he'd been reincarnated. Yeah. So this, this is a pursuit of the history of that. It's extraordinary. You've both written 
journalistically, as it were, about about the world as it is now, about things that are happening in the world now. Do you think of the novel as a form that can only really talk about things a little bit uh, behind us that we can examine by looking back? It takes time to digest, I think. I mean, that's what's fundamentally different, writing novels from reportage. I mean, you do take... write novels that are set now, as in this one, but when you, you know, I'm thinking of mm. novels like Atonement where you've looked back at, at what the war meant, for example. Yeah, but I think even when you're setting it now, you're bringing to it preoccupations that have been sitting for a good while. It does require a long, slow filtering process. Uh, maybe it's even more necessary when you're wanting to address the present. Well, Norman Mailer, who's very good on the writing of novels, I mean, the theory of it, uh, wrote a great book called Spooky Art about fiction and uh, I felt he was looking over my shoulder I mean he, my thoughts matched his about what a weird process it is and gets more mysterious to me as I get older rather than less how a novel amasses itself in the unconscious and then you have to unravel it but when September the 11th happened um, Mailer said I wanted to start a novel about it the next day, more or less. Um, but he said, but these things take a minimum of three or four years to to make their way through your whole system and up your spinal cord and from the back brain to the front brain. And uh, sure enough, um, in 2005, 2006, there were mm. a, a, a slew of um, novels about 2000, September the 11th, 2001. Mm. And I find that's absolutely true that you, a huge you know climactic kind of ex, uh, experience in your own life like death of a parent or you can't go near it until it's you know washed through you roll you know who was it who said wars don't end till they roll through villages well experience has to sort of roll through mm. you and to, uh, into your you know, periphery and then you're ready to write about it which is why i mean given that delay we also value and honour long-form reportage. I mean, that I mean Hershey's Hiroshima and James Fenton and that wonderful piece he wrote for Granter, <clears throat> The Fall of Saigon, out in months. But I mean, it's a, a whole different art of, of really just seeing, just putting before the reader what was there without that emotional rolling of thunder that uh, is necessary. Could I ask you both a bit about, about style? Because it does strike me that your styles are so different. Ian, yours often appears to be a very simple one, a simple story plainly told. But often we get uh, further along and we find there's a tremendous, you know, we're not sure what we've been reading. There's a tremendous sort of um, refashioning of events or there's a very violent act or something like that happens. And Ian, yours is often Martin. more kind of fragmentary you know there are multiple voices and time shifts and unexpected vocabulary and red herrings and gaps in meaning and it seems that we have to do more of the sort of piecing together um they're very very different styles but in the well, same way they, they address very similar things sometimes yeah i think i'm uh, i it took me a long time to to realize that inductive reading of fiction is dead uh, I think of you know one of my great heroes, Nabokov, where he he scatters clues through his novels and uh, he expects the reader to piece them together. I wrote a novel where House of Meetings this was about the, the Gulag, and um, it was very important and key uh, that uh, 
the, the narrator's stepdaughter, to whom the novel is addressed, was a black American. But I thought it would, just, it would seem crass to say that she was black. And I just put so many clues in, I thought no one could miss this. But no one got it, you know. Not my wife, not my editor, not my you know, closest readers. Um, and I realized, and I, I changed the paperback saying, uh, I said, you know, the, stressing the th thematic reason why she had to be black. Was, uh, you'll understand um, my experience because you know what it is in your bones to be a slave. And that's what the gulag was, it was a slave system. And I said, and I put added, because you're black, you see, in italics, you know. Uh, and that's how, that's how explicit you need to be. Uh, and I realized that that kind of clue solving, that reader's gone. Um, Why has it gone, do you think? Just um, people, people read more quickly. There's more pressure on their time for a very good reason in that history has speeded up. There's been an acceleration in one event following the other in, in our world, in our modern world. And uh, writing reflects that. And mm -hmm. I'm sure we've, I think we've agreed on this in private that um, the, the arrow of development and plot has to be much sharper now than it used to be. The great wallowing baggy monster the, um, where you follow various digressions and uh, that, that's gone too. Um, the Americans keep alive that pursuit, don't they? The vast novel. But I wonder though, when you, when you had to make a little revision for the paperback, you're not in a very honorable tradition, Conrad and James, of writing a preface. They took that chance, didn't they, toward the end of their life to set the reading and the reader straight this is how I want to be read, or this is what I want to Conrad do. Conrad and? James. James. Some lovely prefaces to uh, his work. But Conrad's prefaces are works of art in themselves. Yes, they are. Yeah. Um, Great essays. And I suppose if we had world enough and time, we might sit down and write prefaces to everything we did. You know, <laughs> just two or three thousand words, Martin. It won't take you long. No, but Fourteen I mean, times. But don't you find that as you get older and as the, as the future contracts, shrinks, that uh, it's it's a torment even reading the proofs of your last yeah. novel and reading yeah. reading them t you know you don't have to just read them once you have yeah. to read them at least twice because um, you just want to be going forward to the next just forward, thing forward. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you had a period of this but in the old days in the sort of seventies and eighties if I had had no date or arrangement in an evening I would I would um, think, you know, a bottle of wine and a five-hour read of me was the, <laughs> oh, yeah. was the well, you know, dream night. Now um, it's five bottles of wine and <laughs> no read of you. But um, I wouldn't dream of doing that now. And in fact, it, reading early stuff is, is, a, is not a pleasant experience. And because only, you feel like a different, a different novelist? I feel technically, I mean, what happens, you could say, is that... Um, the inspirational, the sort of musical part of your talent uh, gets weaker, but the technical side gets stronger. Knowing what goes where, modulation, you know. If you have a scene of dialogue, don't, the next scene shouldn't be a scene of dialogue and vice versa. You, you, your sense of when you need to break a chapter and get a bit of air into the novel, that's that sort of thing. And nothing really... In my most recent novels, say the novels in this century, 
I'm very seldom offended by what I've written in this century. But when I go back, it's full of vulgarisms and unearned stuff and, and things that are just stated and not, not really realized. Well, you should write a mean preface to those novels. No, do you, do you yeah. feel the same way, Ian? I mean, underpants no, I, notwithstanding. Well, I don't look, because it just doesn't interest me. I mean, I'm not because I... But your work is your early work and your later work. I mean, there are differences. I don't know if you draw a line of development between them, but they are different from one another. I think partly, too, professionally, we're we're required to be constantly explaining ourselves, which really does anaesthetise you to any kind of interest in your own work, actually. And there's nothing better than clearing your mind of the book you've just written than going on the road with it for a bit by which time you can't even say the names of the characters without just up passing with out mm. with boredom. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that's very useful, actually. It's a sanitary it, thing. It's, yeah. the, the mind is cleared. But it, it is a professional requirement that probably was not on any 19th century writer to not only do the thing itself, but explain yourself. And then even if you have written an explanation, you better start explaining that explanation. I once wrote a novel, Black Dogs, in which I wrote a preface in which I laid out I thought, I'll do this now. I'll, I'll lay out all the themes of this book. And it was a, it was a dis- imaginary... Discursive preface. Yeah, it was a little, yeah. little ten-page preface in which I said, this is what this book is about. And I was explaining that preface for the next three months you know, on the road. So, and Ron is right. We have, we have a, a shrinking number of summers and winters, and there's a sense, too, that you know, at some point one's going to have to recognise you're less thought-rich than you once were. Shrinking vocabulary. Shrinking vocabulary, shrinking everything. Stamina also. Novels require a lot of... It does feel like a long-distance run. It's about the length of a university degree. You know, and we've done 14 degrees. What, you mean sort of three years? Three, well, two or three years. Yeah. And sometimes you have to learn a lot. You know, it is more or less a, you know, an undergraduate course. Uh, with finals, you know, in that last stretch when you can't do anything else but think and, and breathe the thing you're doing. So, no, I, the idea of snuggling down to my early work <laughs> would <laughs> horrify me, especially when sitting uh, on my shelves, not only all the books I haven't read, but all the books I want to reread by other writers. They're, most, they're, not, they're not mostly fiction you want to reread. There's quite, there's quite an urge, isn't there, to just be told how the world is and yeah, what it yeah. works, read science, read history. Science and history would be the two that I would most, you know, if I was neglected of an evening on my Todd. Television doesn't do it for me much now, apart from the news. I absolutely agree. Yeah, so, F- football and film, the odd film. The odd film, but, yeah. Do you feel the same, Martin, about reading? Are you, do you veer more towards non-fiction than fiction? Yeah, very much so. I feel that the time is running out. You want to be told how, how the world is, uh, how it works. So actually, I like, like to read on international relations. That's also long views on things by people who've got acute awareness of the present but a long historical imagination to put it into some sort of perspective for you and see larger patterns. That's exciting. That's very exciting. Uh, but also, it's your it's your fuel too. Yeah, I mean, it's yes. um, it, reading a novel is isn't very much not. You're not going to get a novel out of a novel, no. No, <laughs> not unless you're really naughty and just copy no. it all out. 
Can I just just uh, finish by asking you an impossible question, really, about the writer as a, as a public figure, as a public intellectual? I think both of you are in that category of writer who people go to uh, when they want to know what to think about things, when they want to ask questions. Um, is it something that's valuable? Has it changed? Does it have an impact on what we actually think of the novel? Or does what we think of the novel have an impact on the role of the writer? It's a very sort of multi-layered question. But do you have any thoughts about it? I try and do it less and less because I always, in the end, no good comes from no. Also, I mean, yeah. willfully misconstrued. Um, misconstrued and and, um, and distorted and it's, it's sort of asking for trouble really. Because the fact is, I think, that uh, in this country, they they think that a writer's view of, of this or that is of less interest than that of the man in the street. Um, and it's, as Orwell said, you know, intellectuals are the most gullible people on earth and they believe anything, you know. Whereas in America, where the respect for writers is is much greater and intelligibly so because you know when Amer- America was a very young country and when it was when it was looking for its identity you know what are we a collection of Jews and Italians and Germans or are we a nation you know America obsessed by this thing of the American you know soul the indispensable nation you know what what does America mean manifest destiny all these things and they they sensed subliminally or consciously that that writers would have a very important part to play in this, in the formation of a national identity. But in England, you know, you know Chaucer did that. Uh, it, or it wasn't even necessary for Chaucer to do it. It was something that was completely taken for granted. But even though they want, they might value the man in the street more than the writer, that doesn't stop them dialing their Rolodex or whatever its yeah. digital equivalent is. And, and then, and then yeah. sort of pissing on you for what you say about this. I was that. once rushing out of the house and the phone rang. I was going for a walk actually with Annalena in the country and someone from The Guardian said, we're just doing a piece on vegetables. Could you just tell us what your favourite vegetables is? And I said, potatoes and broccoli. And I put it down. <laughs> <laughs> the next day. <laughs> it was McEwen, colon, potatoes. Yeah. Also, Annalena told me around The Guardian desks, there's a term for that person that you phone. Ring around tart, it was. That's right. Oh, yeah, say, so he's a ring around tart. Get him to yeah, tell but- us how many helicopter gunships we need outside Fallujah. You know, there's some novelists who say, yeah, you'll need 11 helicopter gunships and some howitzers and some rocket-propelled grenades and some APCs. And that's what we've got to resist. I'm afraid I've just got to close with one question from from uh, from the outside world that, oh, might, yeah. that might make you feel um, a little bit like that. Uh, do you wish that you'd written one of the other's books? I can answer that easily because I still haven't quite given up the ambition to write Martin's experience, which seemed to me to bring all the arts of the novel uh, to biography. Uh, and it was a deeply honest book, and it was the, seemed to me the most cunning, cleverest and entertaining way of uh, talking about life and family. So yes, and as every now well, and then you know, I think, if I'm going to ever do this, write a memoir, I, I'll have to reread experience first. Well, that's, that's very kind of you to say, but he, he's... He's not. He's not. Wish he he wrote experience because he he wasn't Kingsley's son or like anything Pierre like that. Like Pierre Menard, yeah. No. Let's see if I can do it all over again. Do, do yeah. it all, all over again. I, no, I think um, I I don't think any novelist um, uh, who's got you know any sense of security about him himself or herself would want to 
write someone else's uh, novel. Someone else's nonfiction, you know, that is, you can imagine envying that, coveting that, but, but not a novel. It's, too, it's much too personal. And it's, you know, what people, I think, don't really understand is that you, put, you really put yourself on the line with a novel in a way you don't with, you know, a history of the bombing of Dresden. It's, it's deeply personal, self-revelatory. Thank you so much, both of you. We're off to the Connell Bar for a drink now. Yeah. Yeah, Mm. let's go. Both The Zone of Interest and The Children Act are out now. Thank you for listening to the Vintage Books podcast. If you've missed any episodes or would like to listen again, then you can subscribe to the Vintage Books podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. All episodes are also available at our website, www.vintage-books.co.uk. Until next time, goodbye.